0: On May 10th, 2023, KEI hosted a panel on the implications of the war in Ukraine for the Korean Peninsula. This also served as the inaugural launch of KEI's new publication, Korea Policy.
1: Okay, well, good morning. My name is Clint Work. I am a fellow and the director of academic affairs at the Korea Economic Institute, or KEI. We're very pleased um, to have everyone here today, both in person and online, for the launch of the inaugural volume of our new flagship journal, Korea Policy. For those who are familiar with or not familiar with KEI's previous work, Korea Policy aims to bring together both the objective and spirit of our previous publications, both our academic paper series on Korea publication, as well as our joint U.S.-Korea academic studies publication. And like those previous publications, Korea policy identifies and explores an array of security, economic, and political issues and policy trends directly related to Korea and the U.S.-Korea alliance. And it brings together really academically rigorous, but also policy-relevant research. And I do just want to give a special shout out to Dr. Gil Rosman and also, Dr. Randall Jones, who are our peer review editors for Korea Policy, and Gail himself has been a longstanding peer review editor for the previous uh, aforementioned publications, and will be sticking with us moving forward. Uh, Moving forward, Korea Policy will be published three times a year in three volumes, and each volume will cover a broad unifying theme, and there'll be two sections in each volume. The first section provides various regional states' perspectives on that broad theme, And the second section is more Korea-focused articles that also fall under that unifying theme. Now, before publication, the articles in the first section are presented as working drafts as part of KEI's new academic symposium series at various universities around the country. And the articles in the second section are presented here at KEI's office. And now our inaugural volume of Korea Policy, which is being released today, runs under the broad theme of rethinking the liberal international order in Asia amidst Russia's war in Ukraine. And the articles in the first section cover the war's impact on thinking about the Indo-Pacific region with the US, Japan, South Korea, China, and Russia. And the second section's articles offer a more Korea-centered focus specifically on the effects of the war on South Korea's economy on triangular relations between North Korea, China, and Russia, and on South Korea's effort and initiative to become a global pivotal state. And those are the three papers that are being presented today at our launch event. And we've got a set of wonderful authors and also discussants with whom they've been paired to dig deeper into each of these, these papers. To begin with, to my left, we have former South Korean Trade Minister Yaon Gu, who will present a paper titled The War in Ukraine and Its Implications for the Korean Economy which he co-authored with doctor Yon Wan Ho. Former minister Yaw is a non-resident distinguished fellow at the Asia Society Policy Institute, and as I mentioned, previously served as a trade minister, as the trade minister, excuse me, for the Republic of Korea under the previous Moon Jae-in administration. His co-author, doctor Yon Yeon-won Ho, is a research fellow and head of the economic security team at the Korea Institute for International Economic Policy, or KIEP, in South Korea. Their discussant is Dr. Randall Jones, who's a non-resident distinguished fellow here at KEI and a professional fellow at Columbia University's Center on Japanese Economy and Business. Uh, Next, Dr. Andre Lankov is presenting his paper titled Restitching the Triangle, North Korean Relations with China and Russia After Ukraine. Dr. Lankov is a historian and professor of Korean studies at Kugman University in Seoul, South Korea, and a director at NK News, and a wonderful conversationalist, I might add. (laughs) <laughs> uh, we're very pleased to have his discussant, Dr. Sumi Terry, Director of the Asia Program at the Hyundai and the Hyundai Motor Korea Foundation Center for Korean History and Public Policy at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. And third, Dr. Ramon Pacheco Pardo, Pardo excuse me, is presenting his paper, From Shrimp to Middle Power to Something More, South Korea as a Global Pivotal State. Dr. Pardo is Professor of International Relations at King's College London and the KFVUB Korea chair at the Brussels School of Governance. And his discussant is my colleague and friend, Dr. Darcy Drought, non-resident fellow here at KEI, and a postdoctoral research associate at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. And just a few brief notes on our, our run-of-show. I will pass things off to, to Trade Minister Yacht uh, momentarily. Each of our authors in turn will give a breakdown of the key takeaways from their papers for about 10 or so minutes. After all three have finished, we'll then turn to the discussants who will provide their own five to seven minute feedback and questions based on the papers they've been assigned. We'll then open to a moderated discussion, allowing the authors to respond to the discussants' comments and questions. And then we'll open things up to you, both the in-person audience and the virtual audience. And for those online we have put the link for uh, volume one of korea policy in the chat box so it's accessible there and for those in person we've printed out specifically the three papers being featured today um, i believe uh, in the foyer so if you'd like to pick those up um and i think that's it out of me so without further ado Minister yeah
2: yes uh good morning uh, good evening um it's a really uh, great pleasure and honor to uh, be here and uh, first I'd like to congratulate on the, the launch of this uh, flagship uh, Korea Journal and uh, wish uh, continued success. And also thank you for organizing uh, this in-person uh, plus, you know, hybrid um, on this very interesting and uh, the very timely topic. Today I'd like to uh, discuss, uh, you know, the why in Ukraine and how it affected Korean economy um, I don't think there's many kind of uh, the papers or articles on, you know, geopolitical or, you know, political aspect, but not really on this, uh, how that affected the Korean economy. Uh, but I try to delve into that issue. Uh, you know, Korea and Ukraine is really far away. I mean, uh, in fact, it's exactly opposite uh, side of this, the huge, uh, this uh, uh, Eurasia. Uh, continent uh thousands of miles away but i would say that um in terms of economic impact uh, the war really has uh, has had significant impact uh, on the korean economy through direct and as well as indirect uh the channel the first on uh in terms of this indirect channel uh i think it was mostly through this macroeconomy parameter, especially uh, through this global energy price you know spike. Um, if you look at this you know Korean economy we are heavily uh, you know dependent on, on energy import from overseas so we import over like 90-20 percent of our energy uh, from overseas market and uh, in fact, uh, our, uh, the Korea's uh, the exposure uh, to Russia in terms of our energy import from Russia is, is quite small. I mean, uh, if you look at this crude oil, uh, it's only 4.5%. Uh, and uh, Russia is eighth largest importing partner for Korea. And uh, LNG, it's a 5% uh, and seventh largest uh the importing partner. But this coal and enriched uranium for the civilian uh, nuclear power uh, production—that is sort of an exception—and uh, we heavily depend on Russia. Uh, coal, uh, twenty point twenty percent, and second-largest importing partner. And in rich uranium, it's a uh, thirty point nine percent, which is uh, the first. Uh, so, but uh, the volume-wise, it's a uh, not really significant. But uh, in terms of price increase uh, triggered by this uh, the war in Ukraine. Has had significant impact on Korea. Uh, oil, crude oil, and LNG, and coal, each uh, increased after the war: thirty-nine percent, one hundred twenty-eight percent, and one hundred sixty-one percent, respectively. So you can imagine how that could take a toll on this uh, the balance sheet of Korea's trade. Uh, so since uh, the April twenty twenty-two, uh, which is right after the the war in Ukraine. Uh, Korea has recorded uh, uh, the trade deficit for the first time in 14 years, uh, and then resulting in $47.2 billion of trade deficit. Uh, Let me give another number uh, of how much this uh, energy import uh, in the three key uh, energy sources increased during that period. It increased $78.4 billion. So it was much more uh, this... Uh, energy import, uh much, I mean this uh the value wise um increase much bigger than this trade deficit, uh annual trade deficit we you know record is, which means that um you know we had huge trade deficit in the energy import, but also we kind of compensated uh with a uh, surplus in manufacturing and other sectors. So uh that was uh, the main um, kind of negative impact uh, through these macroeconomic parameters. Now, uh, let me elaborate on the more direct, uh, the link uh, of the war uh, to, to the Korean uh, the economy. The first, supply chain. Supply chain in the critical raw material. Um, especially the Ukraine and Russia have had really oversized raw uh, in in terms of the semiconductor, the rare gas uh the supplies or in, in the semiconductor industry, which is essential for uh, this high precision, uh, this manufacturing process, especially the lithography uh, process. So, uh, for example, neon, uh, krypton, uh, xenon, um, I was really bad in chemistry when, when I was school, but you know, I had to memorize this neon, <laughs> krypton, and xenon. Uh, but it's uh, almost 20 or 30 percent of uh, the you know the import, uh, I mean the the supply uh, being you know with uh, we, we, the Korean companies rely on these two countries, and then um, to make things worse, you know Russia imposed uh, this uh, export restriction on the uh, on these critical uh, the rare gases uh, to these unfriendly uh, countries, including Korea. You know, so uh, this is really interesting statistic. But for example, neon, um, the price increased by fifty-two times. You know, uh, the, during the one of the peak times, fifty-two times, and uh, uh, the value-wise, the total import uh, soared uh, three hundred times. So you can imagine how much um, this uh, the supply chain uh, shock uh, was caused by this uh, war in Ukraine, but. Um I think it was uh, about, you know, a few months after the Korea has gone through huge supply chain shock, which was the Urea in November 2021. So I think that uh, the Korean private sector, as well as Korean government, was a bit better prepared in this time. So I think the Korean companies really scrambled to, you know, the, the build of the stockpiles and then also really intensified effort to internalize the sourcing of those critical uh, rare gases uh, domestically and partly succeeded. Uh, so uh, that was, I think, a good lesson that uh, uh, we, we learned uh, from, from this series of the supply chain shock. The second, uh, export control uh, and also its impact on this, uh, Korea's uh, investment uh, in Russia. Um, you know i mean right after the, the war broke out uh, the u.s really led this international coalition to impose uh the you know the strictest and uh, the most sweeping measures of export control against russia including uh 57 uh this kind of uh, non-strategic items uh, from semiconductor electronics and uh you know the, the sensors etc and uh, korea was uh, korea joined about a a week later, uh, but I think it caused huge controversy in Korea. But actually, I was uh, in that office uh, during that time, and what I can say is that it was a bit, you know, learning period for Korea uh, because uh, Korea's export control regime is is completely aligned with this four multilateral uh, this export control regime, including this 1996 Wassenaar. Uh, this export control regime but uh, we our system wasn't really the designed nor equipped to deal with this independent uh, independent uh, export control measures on this non-strategy item so i think we we had to do a lot of internal you know consultation and also the you know negotiation with the us counterpart etc but i think uh, the public support for, for korea's joining uh, this the you know because was so strong among publics you know the the general public that i think korea was able to move swiftly to join the similar level of this export control uh during the that time but i think it is also good uh you know the the take i mean good the, the improvement i believe because in, in 2014 uh during this Crimea uh situation uh korea didn't join uh, this export control at that time, but obviously, time has changed. Korea's you know place in the world has radically changed. So I think Korea really tried to live up to that uh, the renewed role in the international stage. Uh, third, uh, this energy exposure I explained previously. So I'll skip to uh, to the defense industry. The fourth point, um, I think uh, you know the this war in Ukraine really waken up you know Korea. To the new reality that Korea has really strong competitive advantage in this arms and ammunition and this uh, defense industry. And uh, uh, in 2022, uh, this arms export really hit the record level uh, of $17.4 uh, 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 billion dollars of export, which uh, pushed Korea to this eighth largest uh, exporter of this arms and defense uh, industry. So, this is a big leapfrog, and I we believe that there is a huge, huge potential commercially as well, and also industry-wise, because Korea has all this uh, manufacturing you know, ecosystem in place to really excel in this uh, defense industry. But the challenge is that, uh, as many, you know, the international newspaper uh, reported recently, that uh, Korea is under pressure to... Uh, be able to aid directly uh, to countries in in conflict, and uh, uh, so now um, it's uh, kind of uh, it's not it's not a matter of uh, the legislation, but uh, Korea is uh, the, is not allowed to you know to provide direct uh, these arms sales to uh, countries in in, in in war. So that is uh, kind of big uh, test to, to remain. So uh, lastly, some of the lessons takeaway. Um, the first supply chain resilience i think through this series of supply chain uh resilience i think uh, korea learned a hard way that um the government and business sector the importance of this uh supply chain uh, resilience and the uh, you know the the private the private and public partnership uh in case of urea um that i mentioned uh, our dependence on that one uh, of, of the that one raw material on on China was uh, more than 95%. But in this case of rare gases, it was uh, 17 to to 31%. But I mean, it is is really critical, uh, rare, uh, the raw materials, and uh, uh, really cannot overemphasize uh, the critical uh, nature of this. So uh, I believe also we need international, uh, you know, the collective responses uh, to cope with this uh this supply chain shock. I mean no other countries can do it on it on its own. Uh, so ipep in the Pacific <laughs> economic framework would be one of the, the the I think promising the the platform to deal with. But uh but also um I think government um really is kind of developing its uh, policy responses uh to the you know to find the 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 right uh, way to intervene with this visible hand uh to rectify uh the the problem caused by this invisible hand uh, in the market and secondly uh, energy security and energy uh, transition i think this is an area we see the a can really stark the difference between how eu responded and how korea uh, responded i uh, recently traveled to Europe and I was really inspired by how this European, it really turned this crisis into opportunity to really push uh, through, uh, you know, the renewable energy and then big, big green uh, energy transition. And I heard, you know, many Europeans jokingly says that uh, the Putin is a great contributor to this green, big, you know, transition in Europe. Uh, Mainly because, I mean, European exposure of this Russian gas was huge, right? But unfortunately, I mean, in Korea, fortunately or unfortunately, you know, as I said, I mean, uh, our exposure to Russia uh, in energy was quite small. And the the impact was normally through this, uh, the global energy price, you know, high. So it didn't really push up us to... Really, you know, uh, to this energy uh, transition, um, mm-hmm. which I believe badly needed in Korea. So that is a uh, one big difference. Um, the lastly, I'd like to conclude that um, this uh, the war in Ukraine was, uh, I think, good testing ground for Korea to uh, really step up uh, and uh, embrace uh, this uh, the bigger role uh, needed uh, of Korea as a. Uh, uh, really new global leader, uh, but I think, you know, it was uh, also sort of learning, um, you know, experience for Korea. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, going forward, Korea really needs to uh, recognize uh, the, the expectation and, uh, you know, responsibility uh, of Korea as a new global leader. But I also believe that uh, the world needs to provide suitable, you know, platform for Korea to play such a role. So, for example, this iPad is, uh, you know, I think is imminent. The platform that Korea can play a really leading role, but also, you know, Quad, for example, and uh, G7. I mean, you know, without Korea, I mean, it's really difficult to have substantive discussion in this uh, sensitive technology, critical, you know, uh, supply chain and uh, technological standard, et cetera. So I think it is time for really to, you know, really consider you know the inviting Korea to this the international fora. Thank you very much. Thank you, Minister. That,
1: that last point wonderfully. Ramon's work and paper wonderfully dovetails with that point of South Korea taking an increased role and in responsibilities. Um, but before we get to Ramon, uh, Dr. Longkov.
3: Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, thank you for. Um, inviting me. And second, well, I would say that we are now facing a completely new world. And personally, I don't find it's a pleasant place to live. Uh, but I strongly suspect that decision makers in North Korea have a dramatically different opinion on this issue. Probably they actually like the new world. Uh, because it basically has confirmed all their early expectations, and it creates an ideal environment where North Korean leaders can exist indefinitely. Basically, I think that Ukrainian war is a relatively secondary event compared to conflict between United States and China. From the North Korean point of view, uh, Ukraine is important, uh, but the Second Cold War, if I can say so, between China and the United States is very, very, very important, because in a sense we see the revival of the old situation which existed quite briefly in the late from the late 1940s to the early 1960s, when there was an alliance, a sort of quasi-alliance, technically it was, well, be with, it was a de facto alliance uh, between the uh, Soviet Union, China, and North Korea. We have now a revival of the same triangle, which is China, Russia, and North Korea. It's a difficult triangle because there is very little actual solidarity in this alliance. But I can tell you, back in the 1950s, there was also a great deal of distrust between the same three parties. And I don't see the situation is now, I think the situation is worse than it used to be half a century ago, but not much worse. Nonetheless, as I have said, for North Korea, it's a very good news. Why? Uh, Because in the past, North Koreans had to maneuver between China, United States, South Korea, to some extent Japan and Russia, trying to squeeze as much aid as possible, giving as little as possible in terms of concessions, Uh, because their policy for, well, 70 years was largely about getting aid from the outside world as much as possible, giving as little as possible in return. And they have shown, demonstrated themselves to be really good manipulators and diplomats, I would say very good. But having said that, the situation where they existed since the end of the Cold War was inherently unstable because they depended on the next elections in South Korea, they depended on the changes of my mood in Washington, and so on. And now they have stability, and stability is good. What's actually changed with the Sino-US conflict? Chinese used to have a rather ambivalent approach to North Korea. They did not like North Korea's nuclear ambitions because China is much interested in maintaining the non-proliferation regime. And North Korea was undermining non-proliferation regime. And North Korea was uh, quite provocative in many other regards. They did not usually take into intercon- uh, they did not usually consider Chinese interests. And their actions very often were either reasons or pretext for maintaining or maybe even increasing the U.S. military presence in the region, and China did not like it. Uh, On top of that, there was a great deal of ideological dislike. So, just 10 years ago, uh, 12 years ago, China was willing to consider a future without North Korea. There were at least track two talks between uh, sort of, not negotiations, just consult, consult, consultations around 2009, 2008 between the US and China about, not, I say academics, let's say, you know, track to uh, what to do if North Korea goes down in flame. And China was obviously willing to accept, and China did send some signals, they were willing to accept unification under South Korean control if Chinese interests are taking into account. It's ancient history by now, ancient history. Because with the confrontation with the United States, the value of North Korea as a buffer zone is decisive. They are willing to, they don't like, they still don't like North Korean regime. They still find it comical and disgusting. They still worry about nuclear weapons and so on, but it's irrelevant. They need a buffer zone. They cannot afford uh, this kind of civil war anarchy in a nuclear-armed country nearby and even less enthusiasm China feels about possible unification of Korea under control of South Korea, which will be, let's face it, not unification but conquest of the North by the South, maybe with support at least initially by a majority of the North Korean population, but still. They don't want to deal with an enlarged version of South Korea, which is democratic, nationalistic, pro-American state. So they need buffer zone, and they are willing to close their eyes on what's going on. And they, uh, hence, we have the situation when China has reasons to do what they are doing, that is to ship unconditional aid. If you like, North Korea now is getting... Uh, basic income, you know, this ma- major idea about a new approach to to basically you're just paying paid because you are alive and human. Uh, yes, yeah. so say they, they are having the same unconditional support, not much. China is not going to fi- subsidize North Korean economic miracle because they do, China does not need an economic miracle. Excessively powerful, North, successful North Korea will become difficult to deal with. Uh, the level is subsistence. Uh, some people here might have access to some classified stuff, but even without classified stuff, I can see very easily that Chinese uh, ship, uh, aid is provided. If you look at the prices at fuel and prices at food at the North Korean markets, which are stable, and North Korea does not produce produce food, so it does not produce fuel, uh, so and the fuel price is stable. Food prices, grain prices increased marginally, uh, so there are, are some problems for poorer part uh, sectors, poorer North Koreans to get food. But basically, there's also relatively stable, and indicates it indicates shipments that shipments from China are coming, and I'm pretty sure they will continue to come. American hopes occasionally that it will be somehow possible to persuade China to uh, to stop this aid because in the end of the day, China doesn't want North Korea to further undermine non-proliferation regime. I believe these expectations are not realistic. Yes, China is not happy about it, but on balance, they need a buffer zone. And this is a big news, North Koreans are getting aid, uh, which comes without much dependency because they understand they are paid as basic income. They are paid just to exist. And they can basically, within certain red lines, ignore Chinese interests as they used to do, challenge it. And I'm pretty sure right now they are hunting for trying to do everything possible to minimize Chinese penetration of their politics. And what telling is telling that they are trying to finally get the final solution of the Huachiao issue inside North Korea. Out of 5,000 Chinese citizens who have permanent residence rights in North Korea, well over half are actually now in China. On paper, there are 5,000, really maybe 2,000 or so. Uh, and they will always a problem the only statistically significant group of foreigners who could reside inside the country. And they didn't like it. Uh, so all these type of things they are sort of pushed aside. And where does Ukraine come? When? There is no such a thing as an excessive defense. Personally, I don't believe that Russia is going to provide North Korea with aid on the scale comparable with China. Partially because, let's not forget, Russia, Russia has an economy roughly size of Spain and Italy. And yes, sanctions Russia is facing have been so far remarkably inefficient. Uh, But in the long run, most likely Russian economic situation is not going to improve. And even now, with the current size of the Russian economy, it's difficult to provide much. Yes. Maybe buying something, selling something, maybe sort of symbolic aid. But if you look at the scale of, say, food aid, when the World Food Program used to run database, they closed now. You could see that Russian aid, food aid was roughly 50 times, five zero times uh, smaller than uh, Chinese food aid to North Korea, roughly the same difference. Nonetheless, Russia is also useful because, first of all, it's possible. Uh, some access to military technology, uh, especially if there will be shipments of uh, South Korean arms to Ukraine. There might be some kind of, you know, kind of uh, uh, revenge, if you like. But what is more important, it's yet another vote in the uh, uh, Security Council of the United Nations. Uh, it's good to have Chinese support. It's better to have uh, two Supporting great powers. And for North Korea, this aid comes very cheaply because what Russia expects is just that North Korean diplomats will occasionally vote against uh, resolutions which are critical of Russia, which is basically, well, it costs nothing to North Korea anyway. And in exchange, they get uh, basically a Russian vote, which is blocking something quite important. So they exchange just broad smiles. For something significant which is once another proof that they are very good diplomats even that in this case they are lucky and the question is that this situation in spite of a great deal of mutual distrust dislike and everything is probably lasting because i don't see any end any prospects for sign us co- confrontation ending in the foreseeable future it's probably for decades And as long as this confrontation exists, China will need North Korea as a buffer zone. North Korea will get this unconditional aid. And, well, they are quite happy about it because it doesn't really come with dependency. Russia is a more complicated issue, but for the foreseeable future, I believe that Russia will remain uh, as a part of the bloc, as a junior partner of China, Increasingly sucked into the Chinese sphere of influence, which means that uh, yes, it will keep a kind, or will it will remain a kind of the secondary player. So for North Korea, its survival, this geopolitical spring has finally come. They have survived a long th- three decades of long geopolitical winter when they nearly gone extinct. But now the Kim family can look. It's future with confidence and groom this young bright girl uh, to become the first female dictator
1: of North Korea. Thank you very much. Uh,
4: th-
1: thank you, Dr. Lankoff.
4: Nice and cheery. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Dr. I've, uh It's like the more things change, the more they return to the same. Um, I've never heard Chinese aid to North Korea framed as universal basic income, but that's, that's, right, an, it's, that's it's an How it interesting works. Take. Yeah, how UBI, works, basically.
5: UBI. Uh, Okay. Uh, Ramon, please. Good, thank you. Thank you very much for, for, for the invitation to be here. And, and as you said, my my, my paper uh, focuses on, on, on security, on politics, but it dovetails with the first presentation that we had at focused more on economics. Uh, and it has three three main parts, uh, which I link to, to Raqqa's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, because I do agree with the point raised that this has come as a point in time when it, it, expectations About what South Korea could be doing uh, have changed, have shifted. and Of course, in my case, I I come from Europe, so we have war uh, in our continent. Uh, And if I compare, for example, with uh, the invasion of Crimea that was mentioned uh, before, it's day and night, right? The type of expectations that my European perspective will have about what uh, Korea might be doing. Uh, And the first point uh, that I make is this one, right? That uh, uh, as Korean capabilities... Have been increasing uh, economic, technological, but also as we have seen uh, recently, uh, also in the defense sector, uh, for example, the more requests coming not only obviously from the US, the non standing ally of, 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 of Korea, but also from uh, countries that maybe in, in the past would have an economic relationship with Korea that now is moving in a separate direction, which is not only economics, but also security, diplomacy as well, and technology. Uh, There is expectations that South Korea will use these resources. Uh, And we have seen this very clearly uh, with the invasion of Ukraine. We have seen uh, Poland, of course, the agreement that everybody knows, uh, the arms deal with with, uh, South Korea. But then you have Norway, you have Estonia, and you have uh, Romania as well, negotiating an agreement with, uh, w- w- with Korea. You see Turkey, for example, also negotiating an agreement with, with Korea. And it's quite interesting because if you see the discussion uh, that we have uh, in Brussels, in London, in different uh, European capitals, is how we can uh, deliver for Ukraine, to give Konyran uh, with its example, as quickly as possible right? Uh, And the two countries that always come up in discussions uh, are Korea and Israel, but uh, Korea has a stronger defense industry than than, than Israel, right? And it's able to deliver more quickly and in larger quantities. Um, So the point that I uh, try to make is that uh, I do agree that Korean mentality has has changed, right? And it's uh, becoming more global, more looking at these global issues. But partly this is driven by the growing demand on Korea itself that in the past may not have been there but now clearly uh, is there uh, we had the um, u.s uh, korea summit uh, um, a few days ago during the u.s and in europe for example there was a, a focus on the economic security component as well right so you see uh, european leaders uh, spanish prime minister Pedro Sánchez, Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte, uh, they went to Korea late last year, uh, asking similarly to the US for a Samsung factory, right? Uh, why don't you build factories here in Europe as well, right? So there are these different dimensions in terms of engaging with Korea, in this case directly related to economic security. Uh, we have a French president, for example, Emmanuel Macron and, and, and um, German Chancellor uh, Scholz as well, the two biggest uh, EU economies. Uh, they're going to be traveling to to, to korea in the coming months uh, as well so this is a, a, across the board and across different sectors that are growing demands on on, on korea and russia's invasion of ukraine uh, illustrates uh, illustrates this uh, which takes me to the second point which is the global dimension of korean uh, foreign policy um, and certainly the 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 um, US-Korea alliance has not been about North Korea for a long period of time, but if you look beyond this alliance, right, and if you look at relations that Korea may have uh, with Europe, with Canada, with uh, with Australia, uh, for example, I'm, I'm writing a paper for the for the Canadian embassy, they're very keen on the Canadian Indo-Pacific, in, in Seoul, the Canadian Indo-Pacific strategy, how it can lead to cooperation with the Korean Indo-Pacific strategy, for example, right, so it's not only Europe, uh, looking at these other countries as well. Um, and there is this focus on looking beyond Northeast Asia, looking beyond uh, East Asia as a whole, and what can be done at the global, at the global level, especially by these countries that think that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has a global dimension. Uh, we all know that not all countries agree with this. Some countries, India, for example, think this is a European conflict. But clearly, there are many other countries, the uh, US, Europe, uh, Korea, Japan, Australia, Canada, that think no, this is a global, a global conflict. And and you see this. Uh, focus not only because uh, President Jung himself now uh, is talking about the global pivotal state, uh, but also because other countries want to see what can be done with Korea uh, beyond the the, the Korean uh, the Korean Peninsula and and, and, uh, and as I said, Northeast Asia and East Asia uh, as a whole. And this takes me to the point that uh, Mr. You made as well, right? That um, this leads to uh, demands coming from the Korean side as well. g 7 yeah. For me the, 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 the crucial one right uh, korea for the, for the third time in, in four, four years is being invited to the g7 summit right the us invited it of course it didn't happen the summit but then the uk came along and now japan uh, as well uh, uh, canadian counterparts indicate that canada will also invite uh, korea to the g7 summit when, when, when it's hosted in, in, in canada right uh, so what you see here is that from my perspective uh korea is also in, in, in a position to be able to ask other countries um, what well, does it get in return? And this is of course self-interested, but there's a self-interest component. There's the component of cooperating uh, with so-called like-minded partners, but there is also the interest of self-interest on the part uh, on the part of of, of, of Korea. Uh, and uh, what is another example I was mentioned before? Uh, IPF. But what I find interesting is that uh, if you look at this again from from where I see it from a European dimension, there is also this belief that. Korea, uh, Australia especially, right, uh, Japan, of course, is already part of the E7. Uh, they, they should be part of this forum, right? Because from the European perspective, they may be seen as too Western centric, right? And this might create frictions with high countries. They will say, well, uh, these are the Europeans and the Americans, right? Telling the rest of the world what they should be doing. Uh, so from this perspective, they can, the more countries you can integrate with which you have no political problems. And, and in Europe, the, the Korea and Japan are always the two that I mentioned together. If we look at uh, Asia, uh, Australia it depends who you ask, because you know France has some frictions with with with, with Australian agriculture, o- 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 but some other countries are keen on working with Australia. But Korea and Japan are the two that are always mentioned. Right? So, uh, as an example, we have a project uh, with NATO on, on NATO AP4 uh, cooperation. My colleagues work, uh, are right now actually in in, in, in Australia uh, as part of the project. And if you look at NATO, of course, the US is part of NATO, but the European countries that are part of NATO, they always mention these two countries, right? Uh, Korea and Japan are the two we should be, we should be working with. Uh, which takes me to the to the, to the final point, um, which is uh, what are the implications uh, for Korea in a context in which we see growing rivalry between the US uh, and, and, and China. Uh, and for me it's interesting because obviously I don't come from the US, I don't come from China. So it's a question that we're constantly discussing at the EU level, in, in the UK, in France, when you talk to different uh, European countries. Uh, and of course, each country, uh, the it's, uh, EU itself, uh, have different approaches uh, to this. Uh, some like Germany are maybe transitioning to a position which is closer uh, to, to the US. Uh, other countries have already made uh, that, that, that transition. But what is interesting is that uh, this is a point of uh, constant discussion with Korean counterparts, also, of course, with, with Japan or, or, or with Australia, with uh, other countries as well. But it's a constant point of, of, of discussion. I think from from our perspective, what we're seeing is, is is Korea leaning uh, uh, quite openly, actually, towards the, the U.S. side. And I think the United Statement between President uh, Biden and June was in this respect. It was noted in Europe, we discussed on this before, that Ukraine was very prominently a feature, right? It's not a East Asian issue or a Korean Peninsula issue. It is an, uh, an issue that has global implications, but is uh, uh, happening in, in, in Europe, the invasion of, 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 of Ukraine, right? And this is what I think more and more Europeans are noticing that, that, that Korea is moving uh, towards the US side, of course, uh, uh, strengthening relations with, with Japan, uh, very clear for, 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 anyone, uh, for anyone to see as well. Uh, and sometimes we forget, but Korea also has a strong relations with Australia, that, that in a sense uh, precede, for example, in the, the military domain uh, the, the relations that 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 um, Korea is now building with, uh, with with Europe. And there are questions in Europe about what are the implications about this, not only for Korea itself, right? Uh, which I discuss in the paper, but but uh, I, it would take me too much uh, time. Uh, but also, what does this mean for uh, cooperation with Korea? again, beyond the U.S. that has alliance with Korea. And I think what we are... Um, the position that you see more and more European policymakers taking is that Korea having a more uh, clear pro-U.S. role is actually beneficial for Europe because most European countries are moving in the same direction, right? And again, the more the merrier, right? Uh, if it was only Europe cooperating with the U.S., there were some European countries that would have some doubts, right? Yeah. But if you have Korea... Japan, Mm -hmm. uh, Australia, potentially other countries as well, Canada, of course, as well. Uh, You you do see from Europe, this makes it easier. And my impression is that it is the same for for, for Korea. So to finalize, I'll give one specific example. Uh, The European Union is about to launch, it has approved uh, a coordinated maritime presence, uh, which is essentially essentially, uh, an EU-wide naval mission with the different EU member states providing as much as they can, uh, their ships of this mission, in what is essentially the South China Sea. It's called, I think I think we call it Northwest Indian Ocean, I don't know how we call it, but something, it is the yeah. South China Sea, right? And from a European perspective, of course, this will mean cooperation with the US Navy, for sure, right? But now the EU is going to Korea, to Japan, to Australia, to um, uh, India as well, to say, why don't you cooperate with us? Why don't you send your ships we have joint exercises, maybe period of navigation operations, right? Because mm-hmm. it goes back to the point that I make that Europeans feel more comfortable if other countries are involved in this as well. And in my view, uh, the Korean position is, is the same. Uh, so I'll leave it there for my uh, initial introduction. Looking forward to the discussion. Thank
1: you. Thank you very much, Ramon. Um, And just a reminder, as we turn to our discussants, please uh, turn the microphones in your directions. Um, (laughs) We make sure we catch all the audio. Um, And uh, (coughs) we will go go down in the same order, um, uh, taking, again, all the discussants' comments and questions, and then we'll open to a discussion. Uh, Right.
6: Okay. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Minister Yo, for this interesting paper, a very important topic. And thank you to Clint and KEI for this uh, launch of this new publication. I'd like to focus on the issues of supply chain and also energy security. In my uh, 30 years of dealing with the Korean government, well, at the OECD, this topic of supply chains never came up. Uh, I left OECD in 2019. But in July of that year, we had the Japanese decision to limit exports of three items that were necessary for semiconductors uh, to Korea. And that was the first time this really became a a front page issue, at least from my perspective. And then of course we had the problem with urea. I was in in Seoul in November of 2021, and I had a meeting with the Blue House with the economic officials, looking forward to talking about exciting things like fiscal policy and and, uh, productivity. And we spent 80% of our time talking about urea, which I knew nothing about since I went chemistry. And then we had the question of Ukraine. So I think you've covered this very well. Uh, As a traditional free trade economist, I have very mixed feelings about uh, the shift from efficiency towards security and defense, and I think uh, uh, Minister Yeo really summarizes this very well. He said, the question is how the government can intervene and to what extent in areas that have been left to the invisible hand in the market. To make sure that resilience in the supply chain is secure for national and economic security. So our integrated global economy has made these very efficient supply chains that are efficient, but on the other hand, very fragile. And so how do we cope with that? And Minister Yo points out as well that it can be very expensive to intervene in these finely tuned supply chains, he wrote the challenges that such a transition from supply chain efficiency to supply chain resilience and security will inevitably be accompanied by additional cost and inflationary pressure across the supply chains with the buildup of domestic production, uh, stockpiles and inventories, and redundant outsourcing. And this doesn't fit with profit maximizing businesses. So, so far, we've met these three crises in Korea, and I think overall... Korea has come out very well. But looking ahead, we can see many threats along the same lines. Looking at KEDA data, uh, there are 12,586 imported goods to Korea, where one country accounts for more than 80% of the shipments, indicating a high degree of vulnerability. Uh, I'm sorry, 12,850 in total, and 3,941 was 80% or higher. So that means one-third of the imports were subject to control by one country. Um, If you look at um, the question of um, uh, who's supplying these, China accounted for uh, most of these, about 1,850 materials out of the 3,600, and U.S. had 503, and Japan 438. So those three countries account for most of it. So what we see in the future? Well, magnesium, is a potential problem. Uh, China provides about, I think, 90% of magnesium to Korea, and we need magnesium to build cars, um, uh, mobile phones, uh, batteries, three big uh, Korean exports. So we can see um, this problem could come up in even more serious situations. So my question is, how far has the government gone, advanced in creating a framework that's capable of... Uh, preparing beforehand to these supply chain disruptions. When we talked to President Moon's government, they have certain plans on paper, and I don't think any of them passed the National Assembly, but I'm interested in hearing um, your view on what the government could do to uh, a priori, or uh, beforehand, try to deal with these problems. So um, one thing would be, um, what should be the threshold, 80%? If you look at the rare gases, As you pointed out, the Ukrainian share was only 17% to 31%. So you can't simply look and say the import share is high because it depends on the importance of the product as well. So it requires a lot of judgment what areas are are particularly vulnerable. And if you want to respond in advance, what do you do? Do you focus on import diversification? For me, that would be the the best approach, the least uh, costly approach, like Korea joining the TPP would be one way to further diversify Korea's trade and prevent too much reliance on single exporters. Then we have the question of stockpiling and domestic production. That requires either subsidies or trade protection, and that is costly and inefficient. Uh, finally, as, as Minister Yo mentioned, we need to have this close cooperation between the government and the private sector. Uh, Of course, Korea was built on close cooperation between the government and the private sector. But over time, these Chebol are no longer Korean organizations to some extent. They're international organizations who do not necessarily want to listen to the government. So this would be a a complicated uh, maneuver, how the government is going to intervene to try to improve the situation. And finally, this will require cooperation between countries. And I think maybe more international discipline on export controls, which Japan in 2019, would be useful. That issue went to the WTO. And since the WTO has no more power or any uh, boards to resolve these issues, it has basically been dropped. Finally, a word about energy security. I agree very much that Europe had the shock, and that moved them to quickly go in the direction of more renewables and what have you. And Korea did not have that shock. But I would argue that Korea needs to have that shock. If you look at the goal, by 2030, Korea made a commitment to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 40% relative to 2018. That is a very ambitious target. It was upgraded by Moon Jae-in and President Yoon has kept that target. Uh, To reach that target, Korea has a plan to raise renewables from 6% of power generation in 2018 to 30%. And 2030 is just seven years away. They want to cut coal from 42% down to 21 percent. So Korea does need a shock. It's a shame that this Ukrainian shock wasn't enough, but hopefully there will be a shock that will help Korea to make this very rapid transition to achieve its goal of, of, of cutting emissions by 40 percent. So let me stop there and, and thank you once again for this excellent paper. Thank you, Randall. I,
1: I, I saw, Minister, yeah, you've taken copious notes and you're ready to, to spring into action and respond, but I, I, I just I do want to insist that we get we go down and get all our discussants comments uh, before we do so. So, Kerry. Uh,
4: <laughs> okay, thanks to uh, Kaya for having me here today and for this rollout event for Korea policy um, and giving me the easiest t- job in the world, uh, which is to uh, be a discussant and commentate on anything that Andre Lankov writes. Um, so I'll just give you a headline. Um, I agree with everything that <laughs> Dr. Lenkov said. Um, his extremely cheerful assessment. Um, so I'm just going to highlight just a few points um, and follow up with a few questions. So I thought this was an excellent paper in terms of just giving also an overview of China's very ambivalent and complex attitude towards North Korea, which I don't think many people fully appreciate because they think it's like they simplify it, but it's quite complex. So in his paper, he begins with a historical overview of this very initial decade of unstable Russia, North Korea, China triangle, um, and how North Korea positioned uh, and navigated between uh, China and Russia. And because he is a historian, in, in addition to being an insightful commentator, uh, so I think that was just helpful to have this background for, for those people um, who are reading it and sort of how North Korea have successfully maneuvered or manipulated, you used the word manipulated, mm-hmm. uh, historically between former Soviet Union and. And China trying to really use the differences between these two rival giants uh, to its own advantage. So it talks about Kim Il-sung, you know, we, we, we how he methodically purged influential members from various factions, including from the Soviet Union faction and the Chinese faction and, and so on. Um, and then how Kim Il-sung followed his own independent Uh, policy, posture, and and then conducted this ideological uh, inspection of unreliable elements. Um, And as you you mentioned in the paper, Dr. Lenkov mentions in the paper, really ruthlessly purged those suspected of being too close to Soviet Union, former Soviet Union, and China. Um, And then he also eloquently highlights how China, which does not like North Korea's nuclear weapons, that's, but nevertheless values stability this we uh, many of us know this but he talks about it right and you use this phrase that uh, many commonly knows um, as three no's no war no instability no nukes and in that order I also use that phrase often just because it's such a it captures exactly their priority because it's in that order um right um, and then again the the whole point about how China needs a buffer zone in North Korea, we don't need to elaborate on that, period. That's what China, particularly now. Um, and then Dr. Lankov wrote notes in the paper how Russia's goals are pretty much similar to that of China, uh, no instability, no war, no instability, no nukes. But the difference between Russia and of course China is that it, 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 to, China, to North Korea, China, North uh, Russia is just not that um, uh, valuable or, or um, that as China. Um, in any case, the three no's, right, the no war, no instability, no nukes, in fact, in part, explains what happened in the fall of 2017 in the Trump's fire and fury, rocket man on a suicide mission, maximum pressure er- era, where we did see China do more, and Russia too, in terms of implementing sanctions, right? Um, but as Dr. Lenkov notes in the paper, that, that unity and that was short lived. I um, mean, I agree with that 2023 is not, when was that? Um, 2017, uh, we live in a very different environment, uh, post-summitry, post-diplomacy in 2018, 2019, because in 2017, Xi Jinping had never met with Kim Jong-un, right? Um, but post that summitry and diplomacy, Post-U.S.-China competition and rivalry, and post-Ukraine, we're in a very different era. So today, uh, North Korea and China, and North Korea and Russia are obviously in closer alignment. Although Russia's aid to North Korea is smaller um, than that of China, um, but concern here, and you, Dr. Lenkov, mentions this uh, in the paper, is the North Korean labor experts, which you, you get into a little bit, um, and how that is likely to expand. So that's very concerning um, because in the near future, we should expect that North Korean workers will be employed uh, in Russia in large numbers. So I also thought it was very interesting that you note that to make the UNSC uh, violations UNSC violations, sanctions violations, less noticeable. You talk about how these labor workers could be issued student visas or visitor's visas to get around that. Bottom line, external environment is favorable for North Korea. I cannot agree more with that. We've seen it last year with some 100 tests or 70 ballistic missile tests. No complete paralysis from UNSC. Um, so what what is to stop Kim Jong-un from just Going, continuing down, down this path, there's absolutely no repercussion that's significant. So for a few questions for you, um, uh, you mentioned that given the removal of uh, sanctions on North Korea are highly unlikely. We're not going to mm-hmm. get any help from China Russia. Russia. Um, so even though China will not be able to invest heavily in North Korea, you talk about that, no economic miracle, China cannot do that, but it will still continue to do what it can, China will, to keep North Korea afloat. So the question is, barring any kind of unrealistic fantasy deal, you briefly mentioned North Korea for Taiwan thing, which which is fantasy from my perspective, Mm you call it prohibitive. Um, Barring that, is there anything that U.S. can do to get China to enforce sanctions uh, more strictly? Question, and assuming the answer is no, and China refuses to do so, then what are our options for any kind of sanctions enforcement? Or should we just give up um, on that? And how would you also overall assess our options, the Biden administration's options, or even the UN administration's options, and as the US deals with North Korea, given China and Russia support of North Korea. And given as you aptly write, you know, this externally favorable environment for North Korea, what, what are we left with in terms of what the policy options that we should pursue? Um, and then you talk a lot about you know, the the you know, China's your view of China towards North Korea, this whole China, North Korea. What about, I wonder, China's view of South Korea? I wonder if you can just talk pivot a little bit, just because it's still, you know, it, it matters. Um, China is still South Korea's number one trading partner, but relations have deteriorated China, South Korea somewhat. Um, And there is now interest in French shoring supply chains out of China. So what's the outlook there? Um, And then I would say last question, which didn't come up, but since very recently there was this Washington declaration and so on. How do you think China is reacting to that? And then just the future, um, either how China sees the whole extended deterrence bit and about South Korea, either going nuclear or the whole bringing technical nuclear weapons back to South Korea. Uh, what's whole China's view uh, on this? I have some other questions, but I, my time is up and I gave you a bunch <laughs> of questions. I'll stop there.
1: Thank you, Dr. And in, in, in the interest of time, let's just jump right to Darcy. Yeah. yeah uh,
0: thank you. Um, first, I want to thank KEI and Clint for this opportunity to Discuss Roman's excellent paper um, and congratulate you on the launch of your new journal. That's a big endeavor. Um, so uh, I, I guess my my starting point. I don't want to spend too much time summarizing your paper, um, but the, the the kind of main focal point is to take seriously. I think the UN administration's global p- p- pivotal state mm-hmm. idea. Right, um, and I appreciate how much you take seriously. Like, what is a middle power? How does Korea envision itself a middle power? What is middle powerism, right? And how does Korea mean do that worldwide? I I saw you mentioned MICTA. yes, Mexico, Indonesia, Korea, Turkey, Australia, Australia, which I haven't heard heard in about a decade. Um, and so it was interesting though, right, to to kind of rethink what what does Korea mean globally. Um, this is not the, this is to say, this is not the first time that Korea has thought about its role as a middle power, right? You can go back to maybe the Kim jong San administration and take Hwa, its globalization strategy, right? Interacting the Im Young-bak at a global Korea under the Park administration, it was different, but they, I don't know if it was the Northeast Asia Peace and Cooperation Absolutely. Initiative, NAPSI, yeah. right? So I guess my first swan question is, is how is the global political pivotal state different? Mm-hmm. Is it because of structural issues? perhaps geopolitical, a security balance, the global economy, as we've talked about a lot in this panel. Um, And then maybe it's something about the UN administration specifically, its own interests, its own goals. Um, Perhaps this is linked to this critical junction of the Ukraine, which is, again, another theme of this panel. Um, Is there a sense of urgency, something that's quite striking? I think if you hear around town here in Seoul, um, the inevitability, the urgency of a Taiwan contingency, previously undiscussed. Right in such explicit terms by the by Koreans, um, so that's that's my first, co- country, er, first question, general question. Um, a lar- another part of your paper is to think about how can Korea punch above its weight as a middle power. Um, these poly rec- policy recommendations are not easy, especially committing the political will, the economic or security capital. You go over this in your paper quite well. I, I highly recommend you consider it. Uh, you, you, you take a look at this, um, and it's a clear roadmap, I think, for South Korea to commit um, to, to commit to these sorts of, of uh, endeavors. But the question that I want to ask, and this is kind of my bigger question, uh, lingering, a, it's an extension of your paper, um, is why would want to, Korea want to punch above its weight? Um, and can it do so even politically? Mm-hmm. So what I mean is not just strategically, but in its own self-interest as a democracy with various interest groups vying for influence. When I say interest groups, I don't just mean public opinion polls or civil society, but also interest groups within government, right? How do these interact? Um, I think we're increasingly understanding that the common assumptions that we think about Korean politics are going away. Partisan lines are not as it's uh, not as direct indicators about uh, policy commitments or strategic commitments. Right when Moon Jae-in came into government, we assumed that there was going to be a maybe a resurgence of anti-Americanism, uh, um, you know, uh, different North Korea policy that ended up. I think, happening closer work with the United States in Mm many respects for a progressive administration. And then we're also seeing younger generations in South Korea have different political opinions. And so I I guess to think about these these sorts of questions of political will, there's a lot of difficulties here. And this is a much more difficult question, I think. Um, So I want to, you know, particularly point out the rapid and social and economic changes that have occurred that are driving these questions of what is party politics in South Korea and ideology, social change, generation change, right? Which we really do need to take seriously as younger Koreans take leadership roles. So first in the political and economic spheres, um, uh, as I mentioned before, there's much more shades of gray and how South Korea is thinking about its neighbors. And I also wonder what that means and something that your paper aptly does is think about how Koreans, not just younger Koreans, but Koreans in general, are thinking about its global role. Yeah. So, you know, you introduce South Korea's relationships with Europe, which I know in Washington, I think we we don't discuss enough. Um, there's a lot of there's more cultural affinity than we think of, right? Korea is more global; it has been for two, three decades now, right? Level and in, in social, ex- you know, social people-to-people and economic integration, um, those kinds of questions. Um, then the big one that I think is lingering under this when we talk about political will is in the domestic economic sphere. Um, there is and, and what kind of pressures there's going to be in Korea to re- rethink these kinds of questions about um French oring and, and right, because there's a self-interest at home. There's actually increasing economic inequality. It was a long country of middle or of, of the middle class. But actually those the the numbers. Are changing, right? And that's that's a voting issue now. That's a very big voting issue now up there with uh foreign policy questions. Um household debt in South Korea under age of 30, it went up 40% last year among Koreans under 30, which is a remarkable jump considering um, as a whole, it was 4%. So we see younger Koreans having this this big sense of economic urgency. So when we think about global relations, um w- what does that mean? Um uh Yeah, so actually, this is all kind of leading to the big question in your paper, the title of your paper, which is From Sherm to Middle Power to Something More. So what does this mean for something more when we think about the changing domestic political landscape? How does that relate to the global? Not just kind of in the I'm sure there's a lot of political science majors form in this room, not just the Putnam (laughs) two level game, but really in the sense of like transnational networks and interconnectedness. Um, So I think that's the kind of extension that I'd like to hear your response on. Thanks.
1: Thank you, Darcy. We had the complexity of geopolitics and strategy and the global economy, and you had to go ahead and add domestic politics to it. So thanks. (laughs) <laughs> for uh, making it even more complex. <laughs> um, so, uh, Ministry, uh, I, I might just ask, we, we never want to assume knowledge, um, even though I think this is an informed audience. Mm-hmm. Could you, you do this in the paper, but could you just briefly describe what the urea crisis was, mm-hmm.
2: for those who don't know? Okay. Um, thank you, uh, Dr. Jones. Um, it's really critical and also excellent questions that... Um, Yeah, I mean, for for the audience, uh, this urea crisis hit Korea uh, in November 2021. Urea is uh, just low-end, just one of the commodity, uh, raw materials. But in Korea, uh, these diesel vehicles, uh, including all the trucks and then emergency vehicles, they are required to, uh, you know, have this uh, this urea solution uh, to uh, really know, the reduce uh, greenhouse image emissions so uh, this is you know kind of an essential material to uh, to have all these uh, trick truck fleet uh you know this, uh, going uh, but what happened was uh, at that time the Chinese government they uh, introduced all of a sudden the export uh, restriction on this urea and then uh, it began to really, the ripple back really began to uh you know hit Korea so in, in the market this urea really dried up and then uh, market really panic and then uh Korea faced a really crisis uh situation uh, in which uh this urea could you know uh, you know could be gone uh, in a you know in a few days uh, a matter of few days time mm-hmm. in which case uh the millions of chocolate could stop uh, and then imagine that uh, in this online shopping era, uh, you know all this shock fleet could stop uh, mm-hmm. any day, or including this emergency vehicle. How chaotic that could be in in our daily lives, and also to the government and politically, and you know, uh, etc. So that has been a really big wake up call to uh, Korea to you know really you know let us realize the importance and uh, the vulnerability of this you know uh, the supply chain. Uh, you know sharp we realized that uh, more than you know 90 you know six seven percent of uh, urea uh the supplies we were depending on china and uh also there were a few you know private sector companies uh involved in this industry but they were not really prepared for any of this kind of contingency so in a nutshell this is what happened uh with the urea crisis so uh to back to the dr jones question Yes, Korea. I mean, uniquely, we've gone through three really nationwide uh, the crisis of uh, the of supply chain, and that has been a really big, uh, you know, the opportunity uh, to really, uh, you know, the develop begin to develop this our domestic uh, the policy frame uh, to cope with this kind of uh, a potential crisis. So, um, you know, it needs a lot of uh, you know domestic legislation, but also. Uh, private-public partnership, etc. But, uh, you know, uh, recollecting those uh, urea crisis, I think what is really needed is to develop some sort of early warning system in which uh, you really catch all the symptom of looming, uh, you know, this uh, supply chain crisis and then really kind of spring to action. Uh, so uh, the key issue is to... Um, as Dr. mentioned, we have uh, thousands of you know thousands of these uh, vulnerable uh, this product that we are depend on one or two countries. And uh, is it, it, can there be some objective criteria that yeah over fifty percent or you know the sixty percent? I think market should demand uh, determine. Right? I mean we can uh, put sort of numerical artificial kind of threshold, but I mean, depending on the nature of the materials, I mean, it could even twenty percent could be critical, you know, to supply from the global market. So, um, yeah, and also uh, how to secure this, uh, you know, uh, uh, the real-time, you know, really valuable market uh, or business information uh, from the private Uh, sector—that is a key. What happened during that uh, Uriah crisis is that um government didn't really realize what was happening in the market until uh this one business uh you know one the, the 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 corporation they uh came to the government and really you know cried out there is something something weird going on you know so how to make sure that we develop a system in which the private sector and government kind of I mean private sector, of a channel you know information to the government and then um you know uh, develop this kind of a cooperation system between private sector and uh, government but there is a, this privacy or sensitive business info- information involved so how to strike a right balance uh, mm-hmm. in securing this information from the business but also uh, making sure that they are you know the private proprietary information or the privacy is a uh, is, uh, you know guaranteed so those are the some of the policy questions that we have to you know the, the cope with, and this is a domestic dimension, but also we need this international you know collective response mechanism. I, I believe that um, yeah, um, the the indo in the Economic framework is kind of developing uh, this kind of policy tool uh, to you know the. Uh, encourage this collective response mechanism among like-minded countries. So uh, with that, uh, on the second issue, in the interest of time, yeah, energy uh, security. I mean, in Korea, um, I think now it's a nuclear energy is a really big priority in our energy transition. Mm -hmm. But obviously that's not enough. Yeah, of course, we have to go for it, but also Uh, renewable energy the solar power and uh, you know offshore wind power these are you know have good potential in korea uh so um i think you know this korean government really needs and also private sector they they need to take this dual approach of you know the nuclear power as well as renewable energy not just one or the other thank you thank you dr lankov
3: Uh, Well, uh, first of all, I probably would start from answering the question which was mentioned, but not asked. Uh, That is a question about North Korean workers. Personally, I would like to make absolutely certain that I'm opposing sanctions on North Korean workers. I believe that uh, claims about North Korean workers to be modern-day slaves are, can I afford to say it, stupid. Mm -hmm. Why? Uh, first uh, slaves, wonderful. Last time I checked in the 17th century, people in Central Africa did not bribe village elders for permission to board a slave ship. Last time I checked, people who came back from sugarcane plantations did not save money to bribe their bosses again to be allowed to do become a slave once again. But every single North Korean worker in Russia, Middle East, China, has paid a bribe to be allowed to go. And don't tell me that these people were misled. Many, for many of them, it was the second and third trip. And every time you go, you pay more for every new trip. A rate for 2015, for your information, we are talking about people whose, uh, living whose average salary is about $50 a month. Prices be six or seven hundred dollars for going to uh, to no, Arabia, so Middle East, for five hundred dollars for going to Russia. but if you happen to be unlucky to have relatives in Russia, $1,000 dollars and two hundred dollars for China. Why? Because if these people are not allowed to go, They are not going to go back to their wonderful construction sites in North Korea, where they will be protected by famous North Korean trade unions who are known for their militancy and beautiful North Korean labor law system and everything. No, Uh, because these people uh, actually go, they make money which are then invested in the private economy, for the average North Korean going overseas is the major way to make enough money to get out of the destitution. Basically, if you are just a common person, pretty much the only way. And on, on top of that, they're exposed to the knowledge of the outside world. And the number of times I have encountered people whose decision to escape the country was essentially result of their trips to Middle East or Russia, never China, uh, because in China they are much more isolated. Having said that, I think it's basically a big mistake, the sanctions. But anyway, so going back to questions, uh, what can the U.S. Uh, do uh, to push China? Frankly, I, I don't see anything, because they have said some kind of big deal, but it's a geopolitical fantasy. Yes swapping Taiwan but it's uh, if even if you say something like that you became your, yourself a laughing stock uh, so I didn't say so uh, and I understand you it's know, not going
6: it
3: <laughs> yes yeah but I it's fantasy it's fantasy <laughs> and for China the problem is that the uh, value of North Korea as a strategic buffer is way too high and trust in American promises is way too low uh so China will not accept any kind of promises uh so Well, what are the options of the outside world above all United States and and South Korea in dealing with North Korea? First of all, deterrence, of course. Uh, Second, I would say I would not mind to see a Hanoi-style deal. Hanoi-style deal, that is. North Korea agrees to surrender, not surrender, just physically destroy all known nuclear facilities. In exchange, sanctions are fully or partially lifted. Uh, problem is that I don't see any American administration doing it uh, because of domestic political constraints. Because such a deal will imply explicit or implicit recognition of North Korea as a nuclear power, and of course it's a nuclear power. With all due respect to the U.S. Congress, it's not in position to change the laws. It's in position to change the laws of the United States, maybe even Constitution, but it cannot change. Laws of the nuclear physics. It's above the power of the US Senate. Uh, so, because laws of the nuclear physics are laws of the nuclear physics, North Korea is a nuclear power, period, like it or not. Uh, but uh, admission is impossible if it's politically. If it happens, any administration which will make such a concession will be criticized, will be accused of being gutless and everything. So, even though I believe that such a this solution, such a compromise, serves everybody's interest, including U.S. national interests, very well. It's not going to be acceptable for the U- any administration because domestically they will be criticized, accused of, you know, bowing to pressure and blah 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 blah. Because common public simply does not understand that North Korean nuclear program is irreversible. So. It's an ideal because it's not going to happen. Well, deterrence. Chinese views on as South Korea increasingly negative, and it's a mutual feeling. Uh, South Korea is also has increasingly. You know, um, I have always thought that no country will ever be able to be more unpopular than Japan if it's a South Korean public. China is, according to. Uh, public opinion polls now is more unpopular than japan and it's, it's funny to see how fast it happened and the change took maybe six seven years since 2016 and chinese are quite aware they don't uh, like south, what the south koreans are doing and it's a mutual feeling so yeah thank you Dr.
5: ramon yeah i think i will take there were two two main themes so, so i'll take them In in order, like the first one was, why would South Korea, right, want want to play such a role? And that's an important question because I think uh, there has been this shift, right? There were policymakers in the past that were comfortable with this middle ground position, right, Uh, and this idea that we don't have to uh, take sides or we don't have to be too vocal. But I think that has disappeared. And I think uh, you mentioned the generational issue, which I think matters, even with policymakers. Interesting. If you talk to to younger. Policy makers or uh, officials, for example, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Minister of National Defense, right? They want their country to be more vocal, right? They have grown a different system, a, a democratic system, and they think they should be proud of it. And I think this has filtered uh, to uh, older generations. In this case, uh, they have changed their mentality and say, "Why, why shouldn't we, right, uh, uh, defend our own uh, our interests more more vocally?" And I think that that change that change matters. Uh, and we have seen, uh, I mean, the, the example of China was just mentioned, right, uh, current South Korean government being be very vocal about China in, in a way that in the past South Korea may not have done. But we have seen the diplomatic spat with China and, 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 and South Korea answering to China, right, not simply taking it uh, as a given that it will be criticized and I should just, uh, shouldn't respond to it. And I think that that that, that matters, right, that the... Uh, there's this feeling that South Korea should be uh, doing this. We can go into the reasons. I said democracy is an important one. I think for main South Koreans, it matters in the foreign policy, right? Uh, but I think, uh, um, uh, interestingly, and I'm not a big believer in soft power uh, myself, right? I, I never believed that soft power mattered that much in foreign policy. And I think in the case of South Korea, probably I'm being proved wrong. And actually it helps to shift perceptions about our country, right? And it's interesting how they are, uh, foreign diplomats in South Korea that draw this further, right? The, the growing importance of, of Korean culture and politically should be uh, utilizing this. Um, and, and the second question that you raise is, um, uh, is this entirely new? And, and I agree with you, I mean, I don't think it's entirely new. Uh Korea has seen itself playing a global role. And I'm glad you mentioned going all, went all the way back to the 1990s, right? Uh, because it is true that uh, back then, right, when after Korea joined the United Nations, there was this discussion, right? Uh, we should play a more, a more global role, peacekeeping and all this. Uh, different issues uh, what i do think now is that the environment is very different right 1990s of course united nations wto was uh, uh, being uh, launched as well uh, but now we have moved a world into a world of competition but also minilaterals right and i do think that in these minilaterals south korea has a, a bigger role because it's less countries right so if we're talking about korea-japan u.s trilateral cooperation korean voice is going to be stronger than it was, was uh Organization, right? Dealing with security, same with trade, right? If if the G seven plus, or whichever we want to call it, uh, wants to discuss economic cooperation, Korea's voice is more important than it is in the WTO or or any other uh, organization. And I think that's a difference, actually. With uh, with a, with a few years ago, uh, that Korean voice is more important because there's less countries working together in different settings. Thank you, Ramon, for being um, so concise. Uh,
1: Let's, in the interest of time, I want to open things up um, to our in-person audience and also online. If you have questions, please put them in the chat box and we can uh, highlight them now. I want to maybe gather uh, a handful of questions, two or three. If you have a question that's for a specific panelist, please indicate as much. But otherwise, I think we have enough interconnected themes here where I think multiple panelists might uh, like to interject. And if if the panelists is inclined to say something please just two finger intervention and you can add to it so if you have a question please raise your hand we'll bring the the mic to you mark and then guy
7: uh thanks very thanks very much great panel mark fitzpatrick uh i'm a board member here mm-hmm. uh, both uh minister Yo and uh dr Pacheco pardo mentioned this issue of uh requests to supply munitions to ukraine which have been done indirectly via Poland and uh, lending to the United States. And I'm, I'm wondering, first of all, whether you think this response uh, is deemed sufficient or if you anticipate, as I do, that because the war is going to continue to consume shells at a huge rate, that whether there'll be more requests uh, and whether they might be direct and how, how Korea will, will address this. So do you think that, is it, is there a break, sorry, another question, is there a, a recognition that this is a part of a shared uh, values of democracy uh, and pressing against a uh, you know responding to a, a country that's violating norms, or is it viewed mainly as matter of self interest to Korea that it might help it get into the the G seven?
1: Mm-hmm. And then let's let's get Guy's question as well. Mm-hmm. And I'll ask forgiveness later, but. Let's extend the program by five minutes for additional questions because I assume there may be some. Thank you.
7: Uh,
1: Guy Argoni, a uh, former D- Department of Defense analyst on Northeast Asia. For Dr. Lankoff, looking for a, at least maybe a light gray, if not a silver lining in, in the future that you outline, is, a, is a more assured North Korea likely to be more or less disruptive in the region
3: So what do you mean by more assured in this
1: case uh with with, with allies with the support it's getting from china ah, uh, yeah and and russia mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. do we have a third question that we might gather oh yes please this gentleman in front
6: Rob Warren, I'm interested in your analysis of the relationship with China and Russia at this time and how this impacts on North Korea. The thing that I find amazing is that China is unwilling to criticize the Russian invasion.
1: Okay, let's uh, start with Mark's question about arms to Ukraine, rock arms to Ukraine.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, I'll take connect first. Um, yes, yeah, so of course. Um, you know, the Korea has been at a, a, a war. I mean, seventy years ago. I mean, constantly. This is a seventy-year anniversary. You know, of this Korean armistice agreement at that time. So, I think this is. Um, you know, uh, Korea is uh, joining this international uh, coalition uh, with, because of the shared values, shared values uh, of the democracy and free world. But I think the. You know the sticking point here is that uh korea also is facing you know north korea threat and uh i mean the russia uh is openly um kind of threatening that in case of korea's direct you know supplies to uh-huh. this ukraine uh, you know the consequences well, what kind of consequences could be so um, i think yes uh assuming that the war will you know continue to you know drag on and uh, more and more tragic humanitarian uh crisis uh will be that seen i think korea may need to step up you know from where we are now but the the critical issue is uh we also need to kind of discuss uh this contingency i mean what kind of uh, consequences that uh, the russia could bring uh, in, in relation to Korea's, uh, you know, the the relation with uh, North Korea. So I, I think we have a uh, better expert than I do to, you know, provide the answer to this question. But I think uh, U.S. and Korea and Europe, um, I mean, in, in order for Korea to uh, provide direct uh, their arms sales to Ukraine, I think this matter uh, needs to be also seriously discussed among these like-minded partners. Yes, I mean, I, I think it's a very interesting question
5: because... Uh, when we have the discussion back 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 home, right, in, in Brussels, for example, right, um, the question is not whether Korea is going to provide munition or weapons, it, it is, right. Um, the 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 question is 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 really uh, the whether it's going to do it directly or not, right. But when you talk to policymakers, it's not such a big issue for them because. It's not going to go directly to Ukraine. It's going to go through Poland anyway, right? Mm-hmm. So it's more the political point of saying, "Look, this is going to Ukraine," than the practical point because the delivery is going to go through through through, through Poland, right? Uh, now the Baltic states are also talking about providing a second route. Uh, um, um, I don't know exactly how it work, of course, but they have been discussing this. So, so, in, so in Brussels, there are meetings, for example, between Poland, the Baltic states, uh, the U.S., uh, Japan, and Korea, to discuss uh, to discuss this type of uh, more logistical uh, logistical matters. Some of them have been uh, reported not the contents, but the, the fact that the meeting uh, took place uh, and it was very interesting, because when Secretary General Stoltenberg, when he went to Seoul, uh, and he made the point, uh, he was asking for direct support for Ukraine, right? But uh, that wasn't shared across NATO, it was very much his personal view of the importance of the direct, also because he's about to, to leave office, as you know, so he's, I do it free or to speak his own mind, right? Uh, many other European countries, especially Central Eastern Europe, they, they don't see this as a big issue, right? They say, well, continue, Korea will continue to deliver, it has more and more agreements with different uh, countries in, 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 in the region, especially in Central Eastern Europe. So more weapons and and ammunition as well uh, are going to make their way. And and, and a very uh, last point on on this matter, that there was a very interesting discussion in Europe recently because the uh, European peace facility, right, the the instrument that the European Union has to to deliver weapons to third parties. There was a fairly open discussion about whether to use this to buy Korean munition, right, Um, because these facilities to provide weapons to third parties. So you cannot say this is for Poland. No, this is for Ukraine. And it's quite obvious, right? But it was some European countries, such as France, for example, that said, no, this should only be used for to buy from within the European Union, right? Not even the UK, for example, from within the European Union. But other European member states were saying, well, why don't we buy from Korea? They already have it there, right? So even within Europe, there are divisions as to whether... Um, the degree of cooperation that should be with Korea on this, uh, in this particular area should be done through the European Union, through NATO, or on a bilateral basis. And I think we have settled for the bilateral basis. As I said, for many European countries, the direct, non-direct is it's not really something that is being discussed. It's more about the weapons will continue to flow and the and, that's, and, and and that's fine.
1: Thank you, Ramon. Dr. Lankov, is a, is a more stable, comfortable North Korea, a more destabilizing or nicer North Korea?
3: Uh, well, I believe that initially probably more stable uh, because it's one of the possible explanations why North Koreans have not done nuclear tests. Is it China and Russia pressure? Maybe not only, but it looks like the case. Uh, of course, there are, might be other reasons, but in the long run, if, if they have sufficient kind of certainty about domestic stability, well, they are likely to become more provocative and bold uh, because we, we are, among many other changes over the last few years, we have seen something which I would describe, uh, switch uh, in North Korean nuclear program from largely defensive to like, increasingly offensive. Uh, because they were developing it as a deterrence and now they're develop, they, they basically developing a CBM to blackmail Americans, make sure Americans would not get involved in the Korean War, second, it's the Second Korean War, and tactical nukes to ensure that they would basically annihilate South Korean army in spite of all their fancy, expensive, high-precision mm, conventional weapons. So basically, and it seems that they're still dreaming about conquest of the South, I don't think they will ever do it, but this is something they are dreaming about. So,
1: mm-hmm. mm. and then uh, the final, I think, generally addressed to the panelists' question about Russia-China relations. Why, you know, why why has China not uh, condemned Russia's behavior? I, I, I think anyone who wants to respond to this discuss as well.
5: It was on North Korea specifically, or your- I don't want to China. put words in the general <laughs> Mm. Maybe Andrew,
3: because it's all not Korea. Yes, so why why should they? Why should mm. they? They obviously think about Taiwan liberation. And after all, recently, a couple months ago, the Chinese ambassador in France, who is known one of these warrior, how would you say, wolf, uh, lonely wolves, wolf which, warriors. Wo- 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 warriors, yes, yeah, yeah. I suddenly even switched to Russian automatically, wolf in Russian is wolf. <laughs> yeah, sounds very similar to English because in the European. Anyway, uh, so uh, one of these wolf warriors, a French ambassador, uh, 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 Chinese ambassador to France even said that borders between... Former Soviet states, former Soviet republics, now independent states, are not fully internationally recognized, so they are not real borders. So why should they basically condemn? And finally, uh, Chinese approach to the international politics is very pragmatic. Frankly, everybody's approach is quite pragmatic, but China is a bit a bit of outlier, very pragmatic.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you, Dr. Lankov. Obviously, we could continue to discuss this from many angles. Um, But I just wanna close by thanking all of our authors uh, and speakers today and our discussants as well for their thoughtful commentary. Um, And also please stay tuned for future programs related to Korea policy, including volume two, which focuses on different countries' Indo-Pacific strategies, uh, as well as the issue of how the alliance uh, relates to a potential Taiwan contingency written by yours truly. Um, Thank you again, everyone.
0: Thank you for listening. For more Korea content, keep an eye on our podcast feed.